Hello, homeschool friends, and welcome to this episode of the Homeschool High School Podcast from sevensistershomeschool.com and brought to you by the Ultimate Homeschool Podcast Network. I'm Sabrina, and today I get to be here with Vicki, and I am so excited because Sabrina is here with me. I mean, on a kind of sort of, yes. <laughs> It's a very Zoomy kind of togetherness, but it's working. It's working. Yes, it's been a been a very busy stretch of road here, and we don't get to record together nearly as often as we would like to because it's fun to be with homeschooling sisters and to talk about homeschooling things that we care about. Yeah, like yeah. Shakespeare, which is what I want to talk about this morning because I'm all excited. Yeah, yeah. I, I you know when we were talking before we hit record. You're talking, Sabrina, about the things you love about Shakespeare and what is useful for teens. And I just wanted to sign up for your class. You know, <laughs> I remember you teaching this to our kids back in the high school days. And I, I like did. to wander the hallways of our group classes and kind of listen in on your classes. All right. So go ahead. What's we had fun. Yeah, we did. What's exciting yeah. about Shakespeare? You, so for first of all, what's exciting about Shakespeare is you feel so smart when you get to look at your high school transcript and see that you have Shakespeare on there. <laughs> and when you're homeschool mom and you get to type that onto the transcript, oh, you feel like such a seriously arrived homeschooling high school parent, right? <laughs> so part of it is just the status. It it feels awesome. Yes. But there's much, much more to it than that. And um, actually, I am so jazzed about this and committed to this, that we have uh, Shakespeare literature study guides coming out at sevensistershomeschool.com in the summer of 2021. For the first time, I have had curriculum in my file drawer for, golly, 10 years, I think, mm -hmm. since the first time I taught Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And it's just always gotten bumped down the priority list when I was creating curriculum. Mm -hmm. But we finally gotten to a point where I said, no more bumping, no mm -hmm. more bumping. It's time for the Bard. So I've pulled some Shakespeare out and we're getting ready to um, provide study guides for King Lear, for Hamlet, for Much Ado About Nothing, and for A Midsummer Night's Dream. So we got two tragedies and two comedies coming June of 2021 in the ebook store at sevensistershomeschool.com reserve your copies now. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's, what's really cool is those are some of my favorite Shakespeare's. So not <laughs> anybody else, but I like it. Especially it's fun to get to be the one who picks, you know, I definitely picked personal favorites, not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> so Shakespeare's awesome for more than just the status that it puts on your transcript. It, um, for teens who are working on getting outside of their own head, their own limited experience, um, who are becoming more and more in touch with the world around them and the feelings and experiences of others who are different than they are, it is a wonderful chance to stretch in terms of entering into characters and situations that um, feel very unfamiliar on the surface, but where you find points of resonance on such a deep, like human, global, timeless level. Mm -hmm. And it's really, really good for teens to encounter that universal human experience and to realize that while everything feels new and dramatic and overwhelming and oh so personal when you're like 15 years old, you know, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you should check out Vicki Tillman's human development curriculum, which will help you <laughs> understand the teen experience. But 
when you when you um get to hop into the middle of Hamlet's experiences or King Lear's experiences or um, any of these other characters, you realize, oh, he was writing about that back then mm-hmm. in another country, in a very different culture. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Other people have experienced these things and look how they handled it. Isn't that interesting? What can I learn from that? Would I have done it the same way? Would I have done it totally differently? boy, those consequences, not so good, you know, um, in the tragedies. <laughs> so there's, there's that point of, um, of universal human experience. And then there's also this tremendous opportunity to observe masterful storytelling. Just nobody tells a story better than Shakespeare. Right. Whether you get tangled up in his vocabulary or not, when you get to the story, oh, it's just, it's so good. And he harkens back to Aristotle, going way, way, way back into ancient times when Aristotle laid down the uh, requirements or expectations for good storytelling in a play. I did not know that. Yes, yes. He was true to Aristotle's format. And Aristotle said that in a tragedy, what defines a tragedy is that things do not turn out as you feel they should. The people who are good are not rewarded. In fact, they are probably punished for their goodness. Mm. The people who are bad end up victorious. And that's what makes a tragedy. Mm. doesn't matter what happens along the way. It's that moral and psychological tragedy. It's that we get to the end of the story and we go, no, it shouldn't be that way. That's not right. And it's that existential kind of crisis-y thing. Mm-hmm. That's a tragedy. Mm-hmm. A comedy does not need to make you laugh at all, according to Aristotle's definitions, but a comedy is one in which all's well that ends well. Good people are rewarded and they get good things in their life. They may not get everything they want, but it turns out very nicely for them. Mm-hmm. And the bad people, shame on them. Their badness is revealed. They are no longer able to hide it. And they are shown for what they are and punished accordingly. And that's a comedy. So um, we got thousands of years of good storytellers from cultures all over the world who have all kind of adhered to that basic format. And um, that should guide the way we think about stories and the way we tell them and even the way we read them. You know, that makes me think about with the tragedy, the power of tragedy for changing people's behaviors. So like, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin is mm. a tragedy. Oh, yeah. It's not end in a fair way. And when you get through reading it, you go like, no, no, this isn't OK. I have to make we, it better. Like we are. Yes. I we have, will not let the world be this way. This is oh, just wrong. Yes. Yeah. You got to fix it. And so, yeah. you know, when Abraham Lincoln met. Um, oh, dear. Her Mary Beecher Stowe. <laughs> right out the window. <laughs> And he said, you know, this is the the woman who started the war, you know, like basically people read that book and it was a rampant bestseller. And they say, no, you know, even people who weren't abolitionists, all of a sudden they just can't let the world go on in that tragic way. Right, right. Yeah. And that's what good stories should do to us, whether they're tragic or or comic or historic or whatever. Mm -hmm. They should they should generate a response. Yes. You know, my, my whole literature philosophy with, 
with teaching teens, and we say this all over the Seven Sisters website and, and all the literature study guides, that you're bringing yourself to the story as a reader. You bring your own personality, experiences, fears, opinions, all of it. And you are encountering the author who infused that story with all of his or her personality and fears and opinions and worldview and all of that. And so it's really a meeting of the minds. It really is. And um, it should then generate a response. And if it doesn't, it's probably not very well written. And that's why we, we count certain books um, with more weight and respect on a transcript than we do others, because it's fine to read things that are just kind of fluffy and entertaining. Mm-hmm. But if they don't challenge you to respond in some way in your mind, in your spirit, in your actions, your relationships, your conversation, if they don't trigger something in you, then eh, there's not a ton of value there. It's just entertainment. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare is definitely not just entertainment, but that is the third piece of why I wanted to create some literature study guides to go along with Shakespeare. What a great Shakespeare is entertainment. (laughs) (laughs) These are plays. They are meant to be performed. They're meant to have an audience. They're meant to have um, big, big, um, um, there goes the word right out of my mind whatever I'm looking for, production value, you know, the, these were not just things to be read, although there's a ton of value in reading them. Mm-hmm. And because uh, Shakespeare is so well-respected and because YouTube exists, uh, yeah. it can be pretty easy to find a good quality production of any of these Shakespeare plays that you choose to incorporate into your English language arts credit. Mm -hmm. And then you can watch a performance. Mm -hmm. And when I've taught Shakespeare in our local community, which I did, I think three different times, but we, um, we took a sort of backwards format from the way a lot of classes present it because I would give the kids an introduction to the story. I basically tell them what they're going to see, what's going to happen. Total spoiler alerts across the board. There are not going to be any surprises here. Here's what's going to happen. But that way they had in their mind the uh, basic plot line and Mm -hmm. a decent idea of who the characters were and who you could expect to behave in what ways. Mm -hmm. Then we watched a performance and some of it went pushing past them because the vocabulary got um, Mm -hmm. difficult Mm -hmm. and some of it really grabbed them and some of it they didn't necessarily understand everything in the lines that were being spoken, but the action on the stage and the expressions on the actors' faces made it all make sense. Mm -hmm. And after we had seen a good production, then we read the play and we discussed it and we broke it down and we dealt with some of the really difficult wordy passages. And we talked some about the, um, the style of the writing and the, and the rhythm and the rhyme schemes and all those kinds of things and why they're there. But we didn't start with the language. Mm-hmm. We started with the story, and mm-hmm. then we moved to a reenactment of that story, mm-hmm. and then we analyzed the story afterwards. And that's a that's a great way to handle it. And I know my kids loved being in your classes, learning this way, uh, because what they got was what Shakespeare Shakespeare was about, as far as the storytelling part, and they could enjoy that because they saw the production and then they read it. How did you help them with the vocabulary? Because he was writing in Elizabethan English and he was making up words. And yep. yeah, so what yep. did you do with that? Well, at the beginning of the class, and actually this will be available as a freebie on the site when we put the guides out um, this in summer of 2021, but there's there are so many expressions that are Shakespearean expressions 
that we use all the time. We just don't realize that they hearken back to Shakespeare and that he coined the phrases. Mm-hmm. So we start with that just for fun. And we go down a long list of, you know, dead as a doornail and, and all these kind of expressions that the kids are totally familiar with. They know what that means. And it kind of softens that initial resistance to, oh, this is going to be hard. This is going to be lots of words, you know? And instead it's like, oh, okay. He obviously really got a kick out of language. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it's really stuck with us. So maybe it's not going to be so bad. So that sort of drops the barrier at the beginning. Um, And then we tried to, first of all, explain why he wrote an iambic pentameter, which is a really simple reason. It's a lot easier to memorize your lines if they're in rhythm. So the actors were given massive amounts of lines to memorize in very short periods of time because the, the, um, performances then it wasn't that you got cast in a play like now in community theater you go and audition for such and such a play <clears throat> pardon me it wasn't like that then it was that you were a member of this company of actors this troupe and you had a repertoire and there were maybe eight or ten plays that you had to have all your parts memorized for all of them all the time so it was a huge amount of memorization you can imagine like how did they even do that I don't know I don't even know and they had such limited copies of the printed scripts too. They were often sharing script copies. Mm. So yeah, it's really, actors had such a bad reputation in Elizabethan times. They were thought to be scoundrels. And yet truth is, I think they were really hardworking scoundrels <laughs> in a lot of ways. They had to have really sharp minds though. Like, Most definitely. The iambic pentameter, like rhythm and rhyme helps you memorize, but still a lot to memorize. A lot to memorize. It's also a rhythm that most consistently mimics comfortable speech in conversation. Mm. So while um, a, a person making a speech at a podium may have a very different and much more deliberate and more dramatic and pauses or in different places and all for effect, you know, that's something you practice in a speech class or in a, in a rhetoric club or whatever. Um, but for conversational speech. There's a da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da rhythm that naturally humans fall into when they're comfortable. So he chose to write in that rhythm um, not to make us all crazy, mm-hmm. which is, I think, what a lot of teenagers have thought over the years when they've been told to analyze and mark with all the little loop-de-loop and slashy marks, you know, to show the rhythm of the line. But he was doing it to make it better. For the actors and to make the performance that much better for the audience. Mm-hmm. So when you start with some of those kind of conversations, um, some of the teens who are coming into it with a chip on their shoulder already, they go, oh, maybe Will wasn't such a bad guy. I'll give him a chance. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's all it takes in high school is to give it a chance. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, and, and we think about Shakespeare as being something very stuffy. Mm. And it, when we really can- not it as a you know the the context of history but also there's a story there's an actual story going on and it was written for people you know for actors to learn but for people to enjoy or be moved by yes um, that it's oh so you want to talk about why I picked the four plays that I picked I was hoping you'd have them that way yeah <laughs> so the tragedies let's start with those I chose King Lear and I chose Hamlet mm-hmm. And the reason I chose this is because in a very um, not obvious way, they are extremely similar. Mm -hmm. 
because each of those stories is about a man, whoever the title character is, Hamlet, Prince of Denmark in his, or King Lear in his, Mm -hmm. but they're about a man who thinks that he knows who he is, who he should be, Mm -hmm. thinks he knows how life works and where his identity rests. And he finds that circumstances throw him into total confusion and chaos. And he has no idea who he is, no idea where he fits in the world. But what's so lovely about these two and why it's so good to study the two of them either in a year or over the course of the four years of high school, if you break it out and put one play in each year, is that King Lear does this in his 80s and Hamlet does it in his late teens. Hmm. So it shows that universal nature of the human need for identity and for place in the universe and for knowing how they're related rightly to other people <clears throat> and how difficult that is to, to get a hold of when you're a young adult, when you're stepping into your autonomy and all, and you think, okay, I've got to make my place in the world, right? But you get to Lear and he's in his 80s and he's been the king for all these years. He knows who he is. He knows his place in the world until in the course of one horrible night it all goes south and the people that he was sure he was in charge of make it clear that they don't answer to him and they couldn't care less what he thinks Mm -hmm. and his entire world is turned upside down and inside out Mm -hmm. in addition both of these characters have this really odd relationship with the idea of madness Mm -hmm. and for hamlet it's that he decides that he will pretend to be a little nuts in order to manipulate some people But the longer he pretends at being irrational, the harder it becomes to stay rational. He actually starts to lose his grip on reality a bit as he is pretending Mm -hmm. to lose his grip on reality. Lear on the opposite side of the exact same problem is desperately afraid that he's going to lose it. He's a man in his 80s. He's worried about his cognitive skills going south. As he's getting older, and now all of these circumstances are wrecking his confidence. And he keeps saying, I'm so afraid I'm just going to lose it. I'm so afraid I'm just going to lose it. And eventually he loses it. And that's when everything starts to actually get better. Mm -hmm. That's when the people who truly do love him reveal themselves and come around him and start to work with him. And so it's this, it's this funny look at how much control does being in control of our faculties really give us? And how much is all of that an illusion? And we just need to be honest about whatever is going on. So it deals with some really big, deep things, but in a very universally accessible way. And it sets two characters up, one in old age and one at the very beginning of adulthood, facing really similar circumstances. Mm -hmm. So the comedies I chose, Much Ado About Nothing and A Midsummer Night's Dream. And um, it's because Shakespeare was wonderful at looking at um, looking at love, but not really so much the meat of a loving relationship, but uh, having a really good time with all of the social implications of romantic relationships of the airs that you put on, of who is allowed to be with whom and who is not, um, who has the power in choosing um, a, a uh, significant other or whatever we want to call them. And all the silliness that ends up coming out of 
people who have to do this right. You know, I've got to be, got to be with the right person. And this one wants true love, only they don't really have any idea what true love is. So they go chasing after it only to find out that that's not what it is. Someone else who wants status and they want the good looking, powerful, rich person on their arm, only to find out that that doesn't work well either. And all the silliness, Mm. silliness that we put on to this. So we have multiple couples in each of these two plays. It's not just focusing on one. So we get these fun contrasts of the ones who think that they're going after their one true love, their soulmate in the universe or whatever. And um, the ones who think that they're really smart and they're just kind of running, they don't even really believe in love because they're a little too cynical for that, you know? And then they get slammed with a love that knocks them off their feet. Very, very sweet and lots of fun. But the other thing these two plays have in common is this wonderful character type that Shakespeare liked to use and that was so popular in Elizabethan times. And that is of this um, person who uses words incorrectly all the time, mm-hmm. full of malapropisms, okay? It's what we call it now. They didn't call it that back then. But um, you know, all the Yogi Berra-isms, if you know Yogi Berra. Uh, and my husband is, is a king of these. You know, he likes to say, you know what? You're wise behind your ears. Kind of wise beyond your years. You know, it's it's that kind of stuff all the time. So the character of Dogberry, the constable, Mm -hmm. in Much Ado About Nothing, is so good at saying things in such nonsensical, ridiculous ways. And he is just hilarious. And then the um the character of Nick Bottom in A Midsummer Night's Dream. He's one of the tradesmen, the local tradesman who's going to be a part of the play that they're going to put on for the big wedding celebration. And he's so excited. He's going to do the very bestest job ever. And he's such a mess with his words. And he's just hilarious. So you get some comedy that um, kind of transcends the Elizabethan language too. And it provides a door into exploring the more complicated pieces of the vocabulary um, because there's a really good reward for doing it. If you're willing to dig a little bit and talk about it a little bit, then what you find at the end of your dig is a really funny joke and sometimes like a ridiculous pun or so at least you get a chuckle out of all that hard work too. Yeah. 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 That's especially in much ado, the, the dogberry are so easy to catch on to yes you know even a non-shakespeare expert like me can just get them (laughs) that was hilarious fun stuff fun stuff and much ado has some of the most um witty banter Mm -hmm. between lovers Mm -hmm. ever written beatrice and benedict have they're both so stinking smart. They're so good with words. And they are secretly, obviously not secretly, in love with each other yeah. and trying really hard to pretend like they're not. And yeah. oh my goodness, their their wordplay is just brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, fun, fun, fun stuff. And I have even recommended some um, YouTube performances that you can watch for free. Yeah. Uh, you know, Bob Jones University has sunk some serious money into their Shakespeare productions. Really? I haven't seen that. I did not know that they were doing that, but apparently it's been a longstanding thing. And their Hamlet just rocked my world. And it was actually just produced in 2020. It was a really recent production. The the young man who plays the title role is, he's destined for great things in professional performance. He was just astoundingly good. And their stage is huge and their costuming is traditional. And so it's, it's 
beautiful to watch the colors and the size of the production. But then you contrast that with um, the uh, production of Midsummer Night's Dream that I was right, that's at Rice University from about seven years ago, something like that. They did an outdoor production uh-huh. on a minimalist stage with semi-contemporary costumes and lots of just fun, frivolous, light. And you can see the audience sitting on picnic blankets, you know, mm-hmm. around the stage and all. It's still a big production. Mm-hmm. And it's very well done, but it gives you a really nice contrast of how you can take these stories and you can set them in such totally different settings mm-hmm. and still get such a wonderful experience out of it. So it just goes to show there's not one right way to study things. That sounds like something we should say from time to time on the Homeschool High School podcast. There's not one right way. (laughs) Now, if Dogberry were going to massacre that phrase, there, yeah, yeah, I'm sure he could do something horrible to it, but we do believe there's not one right way to homeschool high school. And there's definitely not one right way to enjoy William Shakespeare. I but am, we hope that you will try the seven sisters way of enjoying William Shakespeare. Yeah. Well, and, and just like all of our seven sisters philosophy is we don't want to kill the play. Yes. Because we don't want to kill the book. We don't want to kill the subject. We want to. Inspire. And if it's a tragedy, plenty of the characters will kill each other anyway. So we don't need to bother. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You do end up with a lot of dead bodies on the stage at the end of a Shakespearean tragedy. <laughs> I, I can't even know. I just threw you off. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, dear. We don't want to kill the play and we don't want to give you busy work. Yeah. There's enough real work to be done when you're analyzing a good piece of literature. Yeah. And we want your energy, your teen's energy to go into critical thinking, into um, reading stuff with their mind and their spirit both turned on so that they can respond to good storytelling and good writing. And it could impact their lives, just like Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin and the impact that that had on a nation, you know? Well, can't, can't beat that one either. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you better- I miss podcasting. I haven't been around enough the last few months. I've got, I've got a lot to say this morning. Sorry, <laughs> I'm dominating. You are perfect. Having a good time. Yeah. Well, we'll have to get back together again. We've got to to talk again soon. It was yes, nice we do. We do. I'm trying to carve out some slices of time because this is this is good stuff, and we really care about you, our seventh sisters. You know, we don't want you to feel like you're having to um, make something out of nothing, where you just you're you're, you're just stumbling along, and there's no guide ahead of you. Um, But if you don't want a formula, if you don't want somebody handing you a, here, you have to do it exactly this way. This is the perfect way. If there's something in you that that pushes back against that and says, I don't think so. That's not how parenting works. And that's not how life works. I'm not sure why it's how homeschooling high school has to work. We want to be there for you. And we want to say, you are not alone. You do not have to make all of this up from scratch. And you also don't have to buy into a formula because there's not one right way to do this. But there are others who have gone before you who would like to cheer you on and help in your homeschool journey. Yeah. Well, I guess we should wrap this episode up. That does sound like a wrap, doesn't it? Yeah. All right. Well, we're glad that 
You listeners joined us this morning, our seventh sisters, because, well, I say morning, it's morning for us. I don't know when you're listening to this. It could be late at night, whenever that might be. Just know that you do matter to us and you are doing good stuff. If you are trying to homeschool high school, it is a worthy endeavor. I think even Shakespeare would have agreed with that if he was around to watch the homeschooling movement these days. Sure. And we hope that if you are going to introduce your teens to Shakespeare, you will consider letting your big sisters at sevensistershomeschool.com help you do that. And so look for those King Lear, Hamlet, Midsummer Night's Dream, and Much Ado About Nothing literature study guides coming in summer of 2021. We would also like to hear from you experiences that you've had with teaching Shakespeare in your homeschool high school with wonderful productions that you have found to watch. Let us know what has worked well to bring the stories of Shakespeare alive for your homeschool. And we hope that you will be back to talk with us about other things that are wonderful and inspiring and challenging in homeschooling high school. So join us here again on future episodes of the Homeschool High School Podcast from sevensistershomeschool.com, brought to you by the Ultimate Homeschool Podcast Network. Mm -hmm.